The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Neil Harvey is a program manager at the Maya Foundation and the Sydney Maya Fund, where he manages grant making related to arts and cultural activities, fourth generation family engagement and communications. Prior to this, Neil was creative producer of the Melbourne Fringe Festival, following other roles with festivals and theatre companies across Australia. Neil also held previous roles as chair of Yarra City Council's Arts Advisory Committee and chair of Melbourne company, The Snuff Puppets. Welcome to the Do Gooder podcast, Neil. Hi Lee, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So, first of all, before we get down to the nitty gritty of this, tell me what your average work week looks like. What do you do? Our work here at the Meyer Foundation and Sydney Meyer Fund, which are two separate philanthropic entities of Meyer Family Philanthropy, really revolves around the approval mechanisms. And so that's the trustees or the directors, respectively, Mm -hmm. making decisions. And so there are four meetings a year of trustees and directors. And so any given week in that quarterly cycle is about preparing material that will eventually go to them for approval. So there are basically, you're at the stages of soliciting applications or, or nominations, let's say it's for the Creative Fellowship Program, or you're working with trustees to develop a new program. Uh, you're assessing material that's been submitted and preparing recommendations on the basis of it. And then you're working with trustees to compile board papers and get that approval. So a given week, I guess, whether it falls into one of those three categories is yep. about outward facing, yep. preparing material here, working with the authorising environment. They're yep. basically the three steps. Yeah, yeah, great. And so you have a pretty crucial role when it comes to assessing the suitability of grant recipients then? Um, I don't think that I have a crucial role. I think that, that certainly the, the trustees and directors play a crucial role in the ecology and that staff here provide the support that they need yeah. um, to make uh, decisions. Increasingly, there's a role for um, experience and lived experience and expertise um, uh, in the types of philanthropy that trustees and directors are engaged in. Yeah. Um, they want to hear from a variety of people with a variety of experience to help inform their, their decision making. Yeah. Um, and so we try and help furnish that and provide, provide them with what they need to make what we hope are good decisions. Yeah, yeah, great. So on that, you've come from a background in the arts sector. What was it like transitioning into philanthropy from there? It was exciting, but it was quite a change to work with the Maya family after working in the community helping present festivals. There's something in common about both, I guess, sectors, uh, the philanthropic sector, I guess, or or, or the arts, in that there's a service 
yeah. you are in a services industry, you're providing services to someone. And whenever we would work at the festival, we would always think about the artists that we were, that we're assisting, we're enabling. We'd think about the audiences that they're trying to connect with. We'd think about yeah. those, I don't know, governmental partners that you've got who are helping you deliver programs. Yeah. And then in philanthropy, we think about the role of the trustees and the directors and the, and the family members and the various committees. And then the not-for-profit sector, which is attempting to engage for them and provide services out to the community. So I feel like the common piece I get across both roles is one of being an enabler and a connector uh, and servicing different or connecting different agencies to one another. Yeah. And I would assume having been in the arts sector, you were on the receiving end of philanthropy a lot. Do you think that's brought a different perspective for you being on the, the giving end of philanthropy now? Uh, I certainly think that at times the directors and trustees probably wish that I wasn't so uh, I didn't have such a different perspective uh, about things but absolutely and that was I was asked to bring that to this role yeah they were looking for to bring some knowledge and understanding the lived experience of the sector of the yeah. other side into their decision making process and I think that's a that's a credit to them and that they, that they sort that out yeah. I feels like uh, for me given my personality type I feel it as a responsibility the need exceeds our capacity and yes. it does every day in the family's capacity so we want to do good with the fund, limited funds that we have and there's a lot of deserving recipients out there and I want to represent them as best I can yeah so you've joined the Sydney Maya Fund and the Maya Foundation uh, which are part of the Maya family empire as we could call it and for those of you that don't know, the Maya family are a very well-known and long-term philanthropic presence in Melbourne. Now, what was it like joining the Maya family with their reputation for philanthropy? In terms of what was it like, I mean, joining four generations of philanthropic experience is what you're talking about. The Sydney Maya Fund is 90 years old and the Maya Foundation is 60 plus years old. Trying to take that all in in the early weeks is is literally drinking from the fire hose. You know, it's impossible to learn everything that's been through this office or the the, the legacy piece, I guess, at, and the family history as well because this is family philanthropy yeah. and the family tree is diverse and broad now uh, and ever-expanding. Trying to kind of work your way into a position where you feel like you can add value uh, was a really great learning opportunity. Um, this is a multi-dimensional and multifaceted dynamic environment, philanthropic environment. Yeah. Finding one's place in it and how you can contribute to that um, was a really good, a really good challenge. Yeah, yeah. That leads into my next question. What does doing good mean to you and how have you, I guess, brought that to this role? My answer is based on my personal experience, I guess, and the kind of person I am, my upbringing and, and who I am. So there are some I guess characteristics of me uh, that are are always going to, well, I guess, be true. Like I can work on them and develop them or augment them, but I'm largely always going to be an intrinsically motivated person. I'm the eldest in my family. I'm also I'm going to have responsibility and duty, and yep. uh, is, are going to be prominent characteristics in my personality. My parents were uh, and remain still very active in the Catholic Church, and I'm no longer and I left um, the church in my early teens but the things that I, I I guess that I took out of that experience 
were potentially its sense of social justice and decision-making paradigms and mm-hmm. responsibility versus opportunity are kind of some of the key tenets in some of the moral kind of moralizing uh, aspects of the scriptures. Replacing that, given my personality characteristics, I think was always going to be inevitable. There would something would have to take the place of that. Yeah. And so my version of, of, I guess, of doing good is based on what I think is, I guess, the best application of me in the community in the world i'm incredibly lucky and fortunate to be in the beneficiaries of a loving upbringing um some fantastic uh, education and employment opportunities i'm a white man so i benefit in a variety of ways uh, from uh, in the community and i feel a, a responsibility and an opportunity to contribute because that's where that's what is meaningful about life to me that is what I think about what a what a well lived life is, what an enjoyable life is. It's one where you are contributing and connecting with other humans. Yeah. Doing good feels like the inevitable outcome of all of the, each of those things. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying that doing good is integrated into all aspects of life because of who you are, rather than placing it as this separate thing that you do on top of life. I look, I'm terrible at remembering to take the bins out, so I'm not good at it, so I can't say that doing good permeates every dimension yeah. of my being, yeah. but it's, I think it, that it is a consequence of those other elements and drivers yeah. rather than something that I do on the weekends for two hours. At ex- yeah. That's my time to do good. Yeah. My experience for what works for me yeah. is, um, is the former. Yeah, yeah. And so... In philanthropy or in this motivation to do good, sometimes we see terrible outcomes. And often we see those when the act of doing good is purely emotionally based uh, and it's not kind of grounded in evaluation or Mm. assessment of Mm. the impact and things like that. What do you see? What do you have any examples of doing good gone wrong? (laughs) Um, uh, I think we've all got too many of those but the unintended consequence of any kind of action is something that I think that uh, we all begin to grapple with as we mature and spend a bit more time in the world and become a bit more aware of others and the fact that we aren't flowing through the universe just kind of completely you you know in no way going to bump into anyone else like that is what happens and there are consequences to one's behavior that you might not intend but nevertheless are very real and i think when it comes to doing good from a philanthropic perspective that's been a big part of uh understanding what best practice looks like particularly in international philanthropy i think we've also kind of found some use in taking some lessons from um, most significant change theory which certainly attempts to understand uh, a little bit of what's good and what is the outcome of the intended good and unintended outcome of, of, of that. Yeah. We found that really useful in understanding the impact of some of our untied philanthropy. Yes. We provide funding that is not project or program or outcome or output based. Yep. There is It is provided in recognition of the recipient's ability yep. um, and, and kind of leadership. And then we're keen to understand what that is. And so we found most significant change theory useful not everyone's experience of having a sum of money at that point in their life was uniformly positive yeah yeah. um that's certainly an unintended outcome for us does that mean that we're going to stop handing out money with that program no not at all but it's good to understand people's experience 
Absolutely. Can you, just for our listeners, can you unpack this most significant change theory of it? Sure. So most significant change theory is an evaluation technique that I think was first developed for international philanthropy or, 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 or community development projects yeah. in developing nations. So you want to decide to build a building or a well or something, I guess, in a, in a community where there wasn't that service. And the outcome might be that you or the output might be that you build the well, an unintended outcome would be that that village is now attractive to some other agency which is bad or, or, or evil and harm comes to the village because they now have a well. So that would the most significant change there is the harm that happened, not the well that was built. We've found use in applying that kind of thinking beyond international and developing country projects yep. as a way to understand and step back from our philanthropy in action, trying to be on the dance floor in the balcony, to use that another terrible analogy, clunky yeah. analogy, yeah. at the same time, yes, uh, and and see the impact of, of of the philanthropy. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point: is looking at the impacts as impact alone rather than positive impact. Yeah. So being open to understanding what the potential harms have been and learning from them next time, right? Yep. Absolutely. We try really hard to cultivate an openness uh, and a receptiveness to feedback here in all forms. Uh, you know, critical. I think I've been lucky that I've had pretty good practice at that through my tertiary education where you just kind of get whacked at, at every <laughs> stage of the way for about nine years and then you, you get well versed in handling criticism. Yeah. But I think what it does here is it actually opens up the idea that, that feedback is an opportunity to get better at what you're doing. and. Um, unless you are receptive to it, you won't hear difference and other otherness and other voices. Yes. You won't hear about other ways to do things. And we remain of the view here that our way is not the way. It's like made up of the way of, that has been shown to us by others. Yeah. Um, and we want to continue to improve it by adding other voices to it. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So I want to go back a little bit to this idea of emotive giving. Certainly me having been on the other side of philanthropy and being a recipient of philanthropy, noticing through that process that amongst philanthropic foundations, particularly the smaller ones, that there seemed to be a lot of emotive giving. So I read something and I feel moved, therefore I call up that foundation and I give them a big chunk yep. of money and yep. I've certainly been on the receiving end of it and it's yep. great. But little kind of little investigation, mm. little assessment of impact in advance uh, and then little follow up. Mm. Do you see a shift in the philanthropic sector here in Australia away from that more emotive giving to an understanding of the need for assessment and evaluation of impact and things mm. like that? Do you I absolutely think there's a real desire from the philanthropists that I meet. Generally, we're talking about PAF holders or private ancillary fund holders or people who not trust some foundations yes. of the like of which I work. And I think that the growth in the number of PAFs in Australia and the amount of money under, under funds under management and the distributions that flow from that are going up in a parabolic kind of curve. In absolute numbers, I think my suspicion is that means that there are more and more PAFs and they are kind of meaning there are more and more distributions of a certain size, not more and more distributions of increasingly larger sizes. I think that means there are many more kind of modest distributions. So that means there are more 
perhaps more board tables, more authorising environments making decisions. And I think they absolutely would like to apply as much rigour as they could to their decision-making processes. One of the challenges is that starting a PATH, none of the funds or the like the, the benefits that you receive from, from that, from the government by putting that money into a, and that uh, offset by the distributions that you make into the community, that doesn't leave any money to apply to the rigor and evaluation that you're talking about. Mm. Like PAPs can't have expertise on tap. They're probably meeting two or three times a year maybe. Yeah. There's no permanent staff there. There's no back end there. I mean, most of the companies or, um, that supply the PAP services, they're doing their best to service. They might have a team, a philanthropic services team in the wealth management division that's probably managing hundreds of paths. Yeah. I guess we're fortunate in this office that we're just managing the two, yeah. uh, albeit you know quite large, but they are the focus of the energy that we're, we're yeah. applying to the endeavour. Yeah. So I think there is the appetite and interest. I think as a sector, we haven't quite worked out, or well, uh, the management sector yeah. hasn't worked out how to apply that rigour mm. or resource it in a way that is consistent with the expectations of yeah. um, the path holders. Yeah, so I guess it's a it's a work in progress in terms of understanding how the system yeah. is going to support that. If there's no money left over, if that's the right. way it's set up makes it like that, it's very hard to change it. And that's the way it was set up. Yeah. It's set, basically, the sector operates, from what I can tell, from based on the, the introduction of the legislation designed to increase kind of private giving. Yeah. And then that needed a mechanism to, to facilitate that, and so it's wealth managers that do that. Yeah. So it exists in that sector, and as a subdivision of those businesses, yeah. these are not-for-profit entities that are managing yeah. PAFs. Yeah. And so can you separate emotion from the logic of giving? Um, I don't think that you should separate emotion from the logic of anything, really. I think that the blended understanding and experience uh, leads to a richer uh, decision-making environment um, and richer impact. It's riskier because you can get hurt and upset and you've got to put yourself out there, but it leads to the rewards then of being involved and connecting with someone in a community in a way that I, I would advocate for. Yeah, yeah, okay, great. Okay, so what do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And it's a big question, but it's something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. Um, I think the most immediate ones that are in our face are climate change and inequality. I think they are probably the primary two most readily apparent drivers of pain. I suspect that taking a slightly longitudinal view of, of, of history, my suspicion is that it might have another challenge might be our, our secular adolescent, technological adolescence as we're moving into a, becoming a society that is based on individual gain as the individual is the primary mechanism through which decisions are made and that we're kind of grappling with the role of technology in the natural world, that the intersection of those two issues might be something that if we ever do move through this adolescence that um, the future generations look back on and go oh man they clunked around there for a while didn't they <laughs> i think that's a more of a probably yeah, it takes a longitudinal view though yeah. in terms of the challenges i think if you the more immediate and most probably pressing issues are around inequality and climate change yeah and when you say inequality what do you mean the difference between those who um, have and those who have 
less. Yeah. From an Australian context, do you have an example of, of that? Yeah, this morning I was meeting with an organisation called Red Dust who provide community building and leadership uh, and cultural development mentoring programs out in remote communities in the Northern Territory. For those of us that live, you know, in the metropolitan areas, the scale of what we understand of as inequality is kind of incomprehensible until you visit yeah. somewhere in remote Australia and you see the difference. It's hard to reconcile that we are one nation and whatever that word means yeah. when you then the disparity is so stark yeah. i accept there are a range of inequalities intermittently that exist across a, a spectrum and that it shouldn't the conversation needs to be more nuanced and complex than just extreme poverty and extreme wealth yeah. um, but that's an example i guess uh, yeah. of, of that is most readily comes to mind from your position what's what's a way forward to start addressing that inequality a preparedness to have conversations about it yeah. would be a good place to start. And understanding that difference and otherness, including perspectives and views and ideas, need not challenge or upset our notions of self and who we are. Yeah. That there is value in a collective good, uh, in a communal good, that what's best for us as individuals will not always be what's best for us in the longer term. Yeah. Uh, and being mm -hmm. able to embrace and sit comfortably in a space of uncomfortability, of yeah. ambiguity, of not knowing where a conversation might go, yeah. would go a long way to starting building a, a coalition of the willing, I think, around affecting change. Yeah, and do you see that as a possibility? Do you see it starting to happen? I think that we've got some way to go. Yeah. I think that the conversation I enjoy is, it feels more, it feels richer these days. Yeah. Um, it feels like there's more views. It feels like there's more volume to it though, as well. Um, and it feels like that the only way to get some views across is to uh, is to amplify them. Yeah. And I worry about whether we're doing enough work to build that container to hold the conversation. Yeah. Whether we're so busy contributing to the conversation, I worry, worry if maybe I need to be spending more time caring for it and yeah. building nurturing it, it. You're nurturing it yeah. and, and holding it firmly but gently yeah. so that we can it can go forward and yeah. progress. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, who is or has been your greatest influence on doing good or being a good person? That certainly starts with family, I think, and my parents and my two sisters are all in my eyes um, good people and I have learnt a lot from them. I've benefited from being around really great teachers yeah. over my life and uh, my mentor, uh, PhD supervisor, and supervisor really, I, I think, played a formative role in, and we met at the right time and I was really receptive and, and really, I think I, I was very lucky to catch her at the moment that I did. Uh, that was really good. I think as an adult, I try to be inspired by and try to be more so present and mindful and aware and engaged that I'm inspired or motivated on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, I think what you're doing is great. Thank I don't you. have the application or the like the, you, <laughs> to carve out the time to do all this and have all the stuff and to learn how to do this given the myriad of things you already have going on, I think is impressive. I want to be better at finding good and celebrating good all the time, not just at these milestone moments. I want to make good an everyday activity. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's about changing my mindset rather than l looking for good because there's good everywhere. 
Absolutely. That's an excellent way to look at it. I really like it. <laughs> okay, so if you were able to talk to your younger self, your 21-year-old self, looking back and knowing what you know now and, and looking at where you are in your career, what would you say to yourself? I'd probably tell myself that same piece about uh, that I was mentioning before about tending to the conversation, yeah. that there are more ways to participate in the conversation than speaking, that being a first follower is really important, that making space for others is really important, um, that leaning out is just as important yeah. as leaning in yeah. at the right moments, and to be mindful of my responsibility as well as my opportunity. Yeah. I think when I was young, I was looking for opportunities and trying to work out where I fit and what, what would be the way. And I think that I maybe, yeah, wasn't taking as broad a view of yeah. my place in the world as I probably could have been. Yeah. I want to talk about first follower. What do you mm. mean by first follower? That if someone has a, a good idea, it being okay to support it, yeah. not reinterpreting it as your own idea or revoicing it uh, yeah. and claim, claiming it or not showing support for, uh, I guess, fear of being unknown where other people are going to land. Yes. That we've actually probably got all the good ideas we need. We just probably don't have enough people piling onto them yeah. out there in the yeah. world. Yeah. I suspect we don't need any more ideas. We just need people to get behind the ones we've got. Yeah, and, and moving out of that competitive mindset yeah. and, and yeah. moving more towards a collaborative way of working. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Okay, if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? That it's okay to be wrong. Mm. I think I'd keep it short and punchy in that if we were trying to you know, come up with some sort of bumper sticker that we were going to print six billion copies of. But I'd go a bit further and say it's really important to be wrong, um, to try and to fail and to grow and change and evolve. Uh, I think that's a really thing that I'm glad and feel better about and feel happier in myself having kind of come to terms with yeah. being wrong a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Haven't we all? <laughs> okay, so now I'm going to ask you a few questions that I ask all the guests. They're mm -hmm. just a bunch of standard questions. Okay. Not really related to this topic. Right. But interested in them nonetheless. Okay. What's your favourite place on earth? Uh, most recently... Uh, it was the MCG uh, at full time uh, when Richmond uh, won their second flag in three years. Okay, so for those of you overseas, Neil's talking about AFL, so football, and you're a Richmond supporter. Yes, I am. <laughs> yes. And lots of people here in Melbourne are complete fanatics yeah. about football, and I think it was a very big deal for Richmond to win. Am I right? Yeah, it was exciting. Yeah. Um, over a longer term, I'd say Burley Heads National Park on the Gold Coast in Australia. I grew up in a surf club there, and was really lucky to have a incredible experience learning about the ocean and surf awareness and physical fitness and community building. And it's just a beautiful, picturesque place that uh, I was spent a lot of time at a formative period of my life. So, yeah, if it's not the G, let's go with Burley Heads National Park. Beautiful. What book are you reading or podcast are you listening to at the moment? I'm reading Anna Crean's latest book, Act of Grace. Yeah. I think that's what it's called. I think. You're right. Anna is a Melbourne writer. Um, her previous work of hers that I'd read was Night Games, which was a long-form journalist work. This is her first fictional work. 
She's incredible. If you've not checked it out, I recommend Anna Crean to everyone who's listening. Thank you. Tell me about someone who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now and why. I think that I am pretty fortunate in that I get to see a lot of that on a daily basis. My colleagues um, who we passed on the way before are working on the development of uh, a leadership program uh, in Australia for the not-for-profit or for-purpose sector that will see a cohort of leaders across from all kind of different subsectors in the for-purpose sector come together each year um, for some um, networking and collaborative kind of learning experiences embedded in retreats. They'll have a sabbatical opportunity. There'll be a, a locally identified 2IC internal which will step up into the role and I'll have support from a locum CEO that will come and work with them and the board during that opportunity. That idea that we could provide sabbaticals for leaders in the for-purpose sector I think could do a remarkable piece of good. There'll be a time and space goes a long way for the heart and the mind. So they've just come back from a trip in Sydney where they were gathering further support for the initiative. So I'll cite them as the most Uh, immediate or proximate example uh, of someone doing some good at the moment yeah excellent and i mean so needed yeah i think so too so so needed and having been a a charity founder and ceo myself uh at a really young age it's a fight yeah you know it's hard work it's a hard slog you're learning lessons every single day making mistakes and you don't get a break no you don't no, and you, you can, it's isolating, it's exhausting. All you want to do is professional development and there is no time or no. budget for that. No. You've got project funding, it's, con- it's a real, yeah, yeah it's really challenging. Yep. We're trying to do something about that. Yeah, yeah, and the, the competitiveness. I yeah. Think, you know, it really gets to you and I think building that culture of collaboration yep. and like you said, not, not recreating but supporting. Being the first follower is an excellent approach. Yeah. Okay, so last question. Mm-hmm. Bit of a strange question. Okay. But what strange habit do you have? My partner would say that it's, it's that I like pineapple on pizzas. Oh, yeah, that's strange. But I, <laughs> that seems entirely normal if you, for, <laughs> to me. No, I'm with your partner on that one. Okay, right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much, Neil. It's been a pleasure Thanks, to Lee. talk to you. It's really good to get different perspectives on this, and I really enjoy hearing from the philanthropic sector. I think... You know, often we focus on the outcome Mm. of your work. That's the element of doing good. Yes. Or we just focus on the idea that doing good is giving money. That's right. And that's it. And I think it's important to kind of understand what's going on in the sector and what drives it and and where you're shifting to. So thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Okay. Thanks, Lee. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.